1: Welcome back to the New Books Network and the New Books of Military History Channel. This is your host, Bob Winterbude. Conventional wisdom has long held the position that between 1945 and 1949, not only did the United States enjoy a monopoly in atomic weapons, but that it was prepared to use them if necessary against an increasingly hostile Soviet Union. This was not exactly the case, according to our guest, John M. Curatola, author of Bigger Bombs for a Brighter Tomorrow, the Strategic Air Command, and American war plans. At the dawn of the atomic age, 1945 to 1950. John, who is a professor of history at the United States Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, presents the story of an ad hoc, frequently chaotic strategic defense posture at the opening of the Cold War. Inter service rivalries, inter agency bickering, and deficiencies in equipment, morale, and training all left the United States Air Force and the Atomic Energy Commission to pursue their own strategic plans, which John notes were unrealistic and, in some cases, almost ludicrous. John, thank you for joining us at New Books in Military History. I'm glad to be here, Bob. Thank you. First, got to give a disclosure for this interview. The views expressed in this interview in no way reflect upon the current official policy of the Department of Defense, the United States Command and General Staff College, the Atomic Energy Commission, or the United States Air Force. The opinions they share with us today are wholly your own, correct? Correct. Well, it hasn't been often that we've hosted authors who focus on atomic strategy. You know, I must admit it's something of an oversight on my part. You know, I, I've been fascinated with the subject since the early 1980s. How is it you came to this project?
0: Well, uh when I, during my graduate studies uh working on my dissertation, uh I found this uh, disconnection between the Air Force, the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, and this lack of, of realistic planning through uh, my research, uh, writing the dissertation. And uh, the book itself is one chapter out of my dissertation that I, that I blew up to provide, you know, more in-depth coverage of, of this topic in this particular area. That's I just kind of stumbled
1: across it uh, in the course of my regular dissertation uh, writing. Well, many people who have written on the subject have been compelled to make a choice between emphasizing either the scientific technological aspects of the bomb and its creation, or the policymakers' emphasis on strategic necessity after August nineteen forty-five. You've presented more of a synthesis between the two. Now, I, I won't dispute the necessity of that, but again, I want to ask: how did you, how did you come to that decision? Yeah,
0: well, what I found was there's this disparate efforts that were going on between the Atomic Energy Commission and the Air Force. Uh, as you know, the Air Force comes into its own during the Second World War, while strategic bombing didn't necessarily unfold the way the framers envisioned it would through the look at the strategic bombing survey done in 1945-1946. However, with the advent of atomic energy and the atomic bombs, this kind of resets recalibrates air force bombing doctrine the fact that now one aircraft carrying one bomb can have decisive effects as opposed to a whole air division dropping thousands of tons from you know hundreds of airplanes and so there's a a change uh, in thought process about the application of strategic bombing mm-hmm. along the same lines it is recognized early on that there should be a civilian organization which becomes the atomic energy commission that should be con- in control of fissionable materials and production and research, only because that they felt it was necessary to have this civilian oversight for such dangerous materials. And what you have is two organizations that are not talking to each other, that have very different opinions regarding uh, nuclear applications, production, storage, a- and use of such weapons.
1: Well, you know, many young people, and to be honest, not so young too, I think are either unaware that the United States Air Force's strategic air command existed or, conversely, that it has been defunct since 1991. Yeah. You know, and yet I remember it as perhaps a central symbol of American strategic deterrence. You know, before we turn to its origins, what do you think of this lack of a historical awareness of strategic air command? and What does it mean for us today?
0: Well, I think what it means is when you look uh – quite frankly, it's some of the the faux pas that the Air Force has experienced in the past few years with this lack of of focus on strategic application and, quite frankly, nuclear application. You have a breakdown uh, in command and control, a breakdown in responsibility, and with some of the recent events we've had where nuclear weapons have been flown across the country and nobody knew that they were flown. Um, So you have an atrophy uh, with regard to this particular endeavor because we think we're beyond it now. That, you know, the Soviet Union went away, we won the Cold War, who's going to apply nuclear war now? Well, I think that there's a, res- a realization now that with, with North Korea, a re- resurgent Russia, China flexing its muscles a little bit, that, that maybe you know, we're not out of that nuclear footwalker quite yet, and that there needs to be this needs to be revisited. However, at the same token, the fact that much of your nuclear arsenal is now also getting old to include, you know, your weapons or bombs, and that needs to be recapitalized as well. And so there does need to be a a refocus on this to make sure that America maintains its, at least its parity, if not its superiority in this kind of application.
1: Well, let's turn to 1945. You know, so much of the existing state of America's atomic arsenal Mm -hmm. at the end of the Second World War, you know, the fact that there was no effective backup, the fat man and little boy, if needed, you know, the slow pace of constructing a new device, et cetera, you know, and other factors. This is all now well known. But what was the general perception that you found of America's atomic power then? Most people felt, well, there
0: was some hand wringing amongst the American population, you know, just a few months after uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima about, you know, should we have dropped these weapons? Are these amoral weapons? You know, and, and as you well know, in August of 1945, there was not a lot of moral qualms over dropping these devices, get the war over as soon as possible. Yeah, and,
1: and Truman didn't have any qualms at all. No, you point that not out as well. Yeah, none at all.
0: Uh, but what you see subsequent to, to these events, then you start seeing a kind of a hand wringing about you know, these kinds of applications. And, and that also helps facilitate this transition to civilian control of atomic weapons, the, the Atomic Energy Commission. And so what you see here is as America as it also uh, demilitarizes from the second world war and demobilizes basically 11 million men we have these atomic weapons now that can serve as our deterrent shield now since we have the monopoly nobody's going to you know encroach on american interests because we are the sole stakeholder in this atomic technology now most americans or most strategists understood that the russians were going to break this monopoly, that they were going to develop nuclear weapons all by themselves. The question was, to when and what extent? Uh, And that was really the the question mark that was going on at this time. But until then, America was relatively, felt relatively safe with its atomic monopoly. The problem was, it was largely uh, a paper tiger than anything of substance.
1: Were the Soviet Union and America's allies aware of these gaps between rhetoric and reality?
0: Soviet Union, no. I don't think the American people or, or the most of the uh, American defense industry uh, or those involved within the, the Department of Defense or National Military Establishment, as it was known back in 47, were even aware of it uh, because nobody was talking to anybody else. Uh, the war was over, the military was downsizing, and there was very little interest. In developing nuclear technology subsequent to the war, as a matter of fact, Leslie Groves, who's in charge of the Manhattan Engineering District, as he's transitioning that program over the Atomic Energy Commission, he has to divest himself of a host of equipment and personnel to downsize the the atomic program since because the war is over, and so as a result, nobody is really coordinating the atomic effort between the military and the Atomic Energy Commission. And the Atomic Energy Commission is headed by a gentleman uh, who is very anti-military. He is very suspect of the military mind, and as a result is loath to cooperate with the military in any large-scale fashion.
1: Yeah, you mentioned James That That's who the, the head of the Atomic yeah. Energy Commission is at the start. Yeah. You know, many people overlook the fact that it was born from this civil-military dilemma and it was originally largely oriented as a defense entity. Yes. You know what's what's the story of the creation of the Atomic Energy Commission, and more to the point, you know how do you get someone like Lillenthal, who is so I'm not going to say anti-military, but certainly skeptical and fearful of the military having control of this device? Yeah. How does he become this, the head? No. Of the AEC.
0: It's interesting. That's a great question. They actually they interview him while he is uh, a lead candidate for it. And they asked him if he is uh, if he feels qualified, and his response is hell no, nobody's qualified for this job. Um, so, you know, th- to start off on that note. However, what uh, he has done, he was chairman of the Tennessee Valley Authority, so he is familiar with large technical endeavors. You know, he does have capability and leadership in regards to scientific endeavor, engineering endeavors, and that's one of the reasons he's put in place because he's overseen the TVA for so many years.
1: Well, how prepared were the planners and senior leaders of the Army Air Force and later the United States Air Force for the potential realities of atomic warfare? Do they really understand its potential and its hazards? No,
0: very poor. What happens is, uh, well, we certainly look at the atomic explosions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki through scientific application, but it's largely done um, through a more uh, engineering measurement of, of. blast radius and effects as opposed to a military lens looking at what can these things be used at how should they be used what targets should they be used at any kind of real synthesis regarding potential applications in the future and when the atomic energy commission sponsors the crossroads tests later on those are largely science experiments testing the effects of, of weapons radiation fallout but none of that information that is collected from those sandstone tests is shared with the Air Force. Atomic Energy Commission holds onto this information, claims it's top secret, and it's now compartmentalized. So the gentlemen who are supposed to be doing the planning for these war plans don't have access to this test material because it's compartmentalized. And so they have very little idea regarding they, 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 regarding specifics about these particular uh, weapons and what they can do.
1: Well, you know, it's another factor you point out too, or you allude to, which is, you know, I I think many people assume that war planning, you know, even atomic war planning, occurs in a vacuum, and it's cut off from other more mundane considerations. But that's not the case. I mean, you you describe, you know, the issues of budgetary constraints. You know, how much of this was, you know, taking place with the the impact and the influence of external domestic considerations. There's a. Let me go
0: back to the the national concerns as as you start off in, in your comment there. One of the problems you have with the war plans there is the military planners don't have any guidance from strategic leaders, whether it be the president, vice president, the joint chiefs. If a war was to come, what do you want us to do with these weapons? What is the ultimate end state? Is it to make Russia smoking your way to ruin at the end of two hours, or is it uh, to uh, provide some kind of a threat, a deterrent? Is it to provide uh, limited damage to facilitate, you know, ground movement? None of this kind of guidance has been uh, articulated either from the State Department or from the Truman Administration, and there are those within the Air Force who are asking this question: You know, what do you expect us to do? And, and my critique of this war plan that goes on subsequent to the world war is that these men are victims of their own success. And what I mean by that is rubble equals success. If I can level a city, that must mean that I was effective and therefore I can win the war. I think that they are, that because of their success in the second world war, they are blind to the nuances of this new application. So uh, to start off looking at the the national level, we need to put, you know, some onus on the Truman administration and the senior leaders and the State Department not providing these planners with that kind of guidance. Now, getting to the internal domestic factors, uh, what you look at is, uh, you know, as America downsizes, it cuts the budget for defense spending. What happens is all the services, Army, Navy and, and the Air Force, which, of course, is going to become its own entity in 1947. Now they're all vying for defense dollars because they know that what the Truman administration is is focused on a a balanced budget. And so, with, with that balanced budget, they're going to be cut down to about $14 billion for the national military establishment. And what that means is that they're going to have to scale back. And as they see the emerging threat of the Soviet Union, the question is well, who's going to get what part of that pie? And the argument from the Air Force is in this nuclear air centric world that we live in now, we're the big stick. We're the ones that are gonna take it to the Russians. The armies are gonna secure bases. That's about all we need them for anymore. The Navy, uh, well, the thing is that the Russians don't have a, a, a large Navy. And so the naval threat really isn't one. And so from the Air Force's point of view, this air centric atomic centric war is really where we ought to put our defense dollars. Now, if you're an Army chief of staff or the chief of naval operations, you're going to take umbrage with this Air Force, air power centric thought process. And this is going to con- continue on all up into the, even the Eisenhower administration and the ideas of the new
1: book in N.C. 162. Well, you know, you mentioned the strategic leader's role. And, of course, at the top of the ladder or where the buck stops is with Harry S. Truman. And you know, he had clear views on the use of the atomic bomb as a weapon, you know, not specifically just about seeing their use at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but the system as a whole in peacetime, you know, what were his views? And and how how did they not filter down yeah. to, to the air force? Yeah, it's interesting. What, what, what's
0: happening subsequent to the war that there are, one of the things that, that's underpinning a lot of the thought of the Truman administration is that, The American economy, its way of life, all these things that underpin, you know, our uh, affluent lifestyle subsequent to the war. That's our real strength. And if we outspend ourselves defensively and undermine our economy, that's what the Russians really want. So the thought process at the time was, hey, let's minimize defense spending, balance our budget, return to a peacetime economy where we're focusing on large appliances and cars and those kinds of things consumerism in its finest form, and will minimize defense expenditures and will put money, uh, you know, in this atomic endeavor. But again, you have this argument between the various services over how much of that defense pie should, should be divvied out. The Air Force has a number of studies that are done in Congress that advocate a 70-group Air Force to conduct this kind of deterrence defense missions. Problem is that they're not funded for 70 groups. And this gets to be an argument, you know, between the services, as I talk about the
1: rivalries with regard to the beltway isn't built yet, but these beltway discussions that occurred during this time. Well, we know about what will happen in nineteen forty nine with you know the revolt of the admirals and, right. and such. And I'm I'm jumping ahead a bit. That's an example, of course, though the inter-service rivalry that you're describing. It really was that serious, wasn't it? It
0: was. There's some books out there already, Jeffrey Barlow's book, but it's very serious. And there's some subterfuge that goes on. Uh, there are false accusations that are printed, that are sent out to members of Congress and the press. There is congressional inquiries. And then there's testimony in October in 1949 that generals and the admirals basically plead their case to Congress regarding naval aviation or strategic bombardment as the way forward for American defensive postures. And what happens is the Navy loses, and it loses badly to the Air Force. And as a matter of fact, the Chief of Naval Operations is fired as a result. Many members of the cell that did a lot of the research regarding nuclear applications within the Navy, those guys are reassigned. Some of them are fired. So you do have – it's a very nasty tooth-and-nail fight between the services – To include articles being run in the Saturday Evening Post and and various uh, other civilian periodicals where they are advocating, the Navy and the Air Force both advocating to the American public directly, their positions. And it gets so bad that the Secretary of Defense actually has to get involved, uh, James Forrestal and tell him, stop it. Anything that's going to come out of the Department of Defense must clear my office before it goes up because he gets so tired of them bickering at each other in various venues.
1: Well, we're going to shift gears a bit. You know, the, okay. you know, what, what was the Baruch plan? You know, I mean, you and I know what it is, but for, for our listeners and how does it shape relations between the new atomic energy commission and the department of defense? What happens is when the atomic
0: energy commission gets established with the McMahon act, what happens is all the nuclear fissionable materials are supposed to be given to the Atomic Energy Commission for for storage, for safekeeping, and for future research. But here's one of the problems you have is the Manhattan Project, which, of course, was the wartime project that was going on to make Fat Man and Little Boy. Most of those scientists, the long hairs as they referred to them, they went home. They went back to academia uh, and, and continued their lives. And when you have this exodus of these brain of these uh, the brain drain if you want to use that term it creates a lot of chaos within the atomic energy commission because nobody's around now a lot of these smart guys have left and as they have a bunch of components of various bombs and it's so bad that uh, some of the people that remain because the project was so compartmentalized have all these bits and pieces of bombs and they don't even know what bomb they go to they have notes from some of these scientists. But again, these are just notes. There's no printed, approved uh, manual on how to make a fat man, how to assemble a fat man, because this was such an ad hoc experimental application during the war for you know expeditions, expeditious use that nobody bothered to put this stuff down in formal writing. So there was a lot of reconstruction that has to go on regarding how these things work, how they're put together, And which parts go to where. So you have a complete problem with regard to managing these assets, managing these people. And with the brain drain of these scientists, there is also a morale problem at Los Alamos, a, a loss of purpose, if you will, because they were all fighting for the war for good reasons. But now that expediency is gone. And so there is a, a, a huge morale problem. And plus, Los Alamos, if you've ever been there, is very as a remote site. So it's not necessarily a garden spot if you have a
1: wife and some kids and you don't know what your next job is. How prepared was the United States for a potential crisis that could escalate into a scenario that would yeah. include using the atomic bomb before 1950?
0: Yeah, hardly. As best as I can find, because... There are, In the course of my research, I still found a lot of redacted reports you know, that, that still are classified to this day for you know, whatever reason. But best as we can tell, uh, 1947, Harry, that's the first time Harry Truman actually gets a report regarding the number of atomic bombs that is in the U.S. arsenal. So this is two years after the war. And it isn't and it isn't until then that he gets a report now the report when you find it in the archives, the number of bombs is is blank it's only it's given to him orally now supposedly as, as best as we can tell, the number of bombs on hand for the Americans is six to the best of our abilities what we can find because we launched two during the the, the crossroads test, so we had eight minus two leaves us six. And supposedly, when Truman learns about this, according to those who were there, he turned gray. And on top of that, if I'm to be more specific, you have components for six bombs. You don't have six bombs. Because the shelf life of a fat man bomb is only about a week. Was that the
1: main uh, reason for the bottleneck or, or were there other factors?
0: It's a reason for the bottleneck. Plus, it takes about 48, 72 hours for a trained bomb crew to build the bomb. The uh, lenses that provide the implosion for Fat Man are literally glued into place by hand. This has to be done by a specially trained crew. Now, you have to have batteries that will help keep uh, the, the initiating charge alive. Well, the thing is, the, uh, the plutonium emits so much radiation that it not only degrades the battery life, but it also degrades the initiators for the explosion. So after about a week, you got to take the whole bomb apart and replace everything. And again, back to the 72-hour window. Uh, and, of course, to build these bombs, you have to have uh, certain power requirements. You have to have, you know, a place to actually build them. Well, here's the problem. If you're going to conduct uh, a an uh, atomic bombing campaign, you need the range to do that. The problem is none of our bombers can really fly that far at this time. We don't have interno- intercontinental bombers as we would do that today. We have the B-29, but it still has to fly from a forward bl- base. What that means is you
1: have to assemble the bomb f- forward, then load it up in the aircraft and then fly it forward. Well, that comes to my next question, you know, which is, you know, a good part of the story here is the Air Force's quest for this reliable delivery system. You know, how how does the Air Force get from the B twenty nine Super Fortress to the B fifty two Strato Fortress platforms? I mean, there are several yeah. marks and models there. Absolutely, the B
0: twenty nine, of course, you know, the firebombing of Japan, and, and the B twenty nine has a number of teething problems. You know, early on in its operation. As a matter of fact, its teething problems regarding the the engines and the pressurization systems and the meteorology that affected it forces LeMay to go from high altitude to low altitude, which results in the Tokyo firebombing and the things that you see happening over Japan in the spring and summer of 1945. The thing is, that standard B 29 can't carry a fat man or little boy bomb. You have to have a specially configured. B-29 to have the lifting shackles and sway bars to hold a 10,000-pound bomb in its bomb bay. So what happens is the U.S. Air Force builds what's called silver plate bombers. These are specially configured B-29s. They have some water injection in them. They have the defensive armament removed. They have electronic doors as opposed to pneumatic bomb bay doors. There's never modification to the silver plate B-29s because they have to fly fly a very specific profile to get out of the way of the atomic blast. They have to execute a 180-degree turn you know, and dive away, which is a violent maneuver for an aircraft that big. After the war, the number of silver plate B-29s that the U.S. has on hand is about two dozen, ballpark figure. And by 1947, they are described as being rather war-weary. Yeah. So the the aircraft that the U.S. has to even deliver this weapon, they're already in bad shape. And I didn't even address the crews themselves. It's one thing to have the weapon system. Do you have crews? that can deliver this weapon in a uh, professional, competent manner. And the Air Force is severely lacking that skill set as well.
1: And, of course, all this presumes that the United States is going to achieve air supremacy in any conflict with the Soviet Union.
0: Absolutely. And that's another problem, if you go back to the war plans a little bit, in that we have no idea or I'm going to back up, I'll, I'll change that. We have very little credible evidence regarding target sets within the Soviet Union at this time. The only way the U.S. is getting any intelligence about target sets within the Soviet Union itself is by conducting interviews with POWs who were either in the Gulag or who were in various places within the Soviet Union who were forced laborers. And so what happens is the U.S. takes that intelligence and build, starts building their target list. Now the question is, you know, 3 or 4 years later is that still a viable target? Is that still there? Are they still making tanks there? And so the problem is the US's intel regarding specific targets is sketchy at best. And we won't start getting, you know, spies into the Soviet Union and satellites until much later in the 1950s. But this particular project project Ringer interviews thousands of POWs who were sitting in the Soviet Union. And that's how we're developing our target lists and what the Germans were telling us from their experiences on the Eastern front during the war. So our target sets, you know, at best are specious. Now, having said that, getting back to your point, Bob, the Soviet air defense system, we know very little about. We know that they have some technology they got from us, lend-lease and that they have modified some of their radar sets, you know, and we know that they do have, you know, some interceptors, but what we are also realized now is they have this new thing called the MiG-15, a new jet interceptor. But uh, again, how many do they have? How many are in sector? What are their radar capabilities? That is a big question mark that nobody can really answer at this time. So the crews themselves are flying into the unknown, not only in terms of target set, but in terms of Soviet defensive capabilities?
1: You know, obviously, this is all the result, I, I would say, you know, in part, of, of the Air Force's obsession with its wartime strategic bombing campaign. Other historians have noted that the subsequent assessment of the air war against Germany and Japan, you know, st- the strategic bombing survey, was inconclusive, if not directly critical, when it came to the RB Air Force's planning and execution. Yeah, you know, and further, as you say, every analyst recognized, from what little they knew, that the Soviet Union's air defense capability was far greater than that of the Axis powers after nineteen forty-five.
0: And, and you think about the fact that the Soviet
1: Union is sixty-three times bigger than Greater Germany. Yeah, I mean, was all this, you know, reliance on the Strategic Bombing Survey, survey as inspiration for the planning between nineteen forty-six and nineteen fifty? Was, a this a, question. was this a case of cognitive dissonance, or was the veiled effort to achieve it, greater public support?
0: Yeah, Here, here's the truth. That, as you correctly identified, the bombing survey, I always tell my students, it's kind of like the Bible. You can interpret it any way you want. It worked, or it didn't work. It's it, it's it's very ambiguous, as far as I'm concerned. You know, if if you're pro Air Force, you could say it validated it. Now, I agree with you that. It at best worked uh, marginally at best. However, if you're in the United States Air Force or Army Air, Army Air Forces in 1946 and you read the bomber survey, your mouth is agape. You don't believe it. There is no way in their minds that strategic bombing didn't work. Yeah. There, there was quite a bit of controversy over the, the bombing survey, when it comes out, if you're wearing a, 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 an Army Air Force's uniform, they won the war. That is their mindset. And so when you look at the Air Force's planning factors and, and how they viewed their role in the war, they discount much of what the usbus says. And that what they'll argue is they're not taking everything into account. They're not looking at the secondary and tertiary effects of what we did. Which would matter
1: in an atomic war anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, they're, what they're saying is now is, well, now we have atomic weapons. And so that changes the application, you know, with one bomb, you know, one aircraft. But the idea is still good because look what we did to Germany in the Second World War, despite what the US says. Mm-hmm. So, again, if you're in the Air Force in 1946 and 47, we won the war.
1: End of story. How does all this fit into the war plans that David Allen Rosenberg described in that 1983 yeah. article? You know, the article, for those who aren't familiar, it's titled The Origins of Overkill, Nuclear Weapons of the American Strategy, 1945 to 1960.
0: Yeah, and that's a that's a great read as well. He did, just did yeoman work with that. Here's the problem is you go back to these ideas of, of the target sets. What are we blowing up and why are we blowing it up? What is your... End state? What do you hope to achieve with this bombing effort? And as I said before, you don't have any kind of input from the National Security Council or from the strategic uh, leadership as to what you expect these war plans to accomplish. And so, what the Air Force does, and going back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier, was they're victims of their own success, if you want to use that term, that we can blow these cities up. Uh, There is now recognition that a city is nothing more than a collection of industry. That's kind of how they uh, determine it now. And so what they fully expect is we're going to hit these cities, we're going to smash the Soviet Union's industrial capacity, and they will just capitulate. End of story. And now it's a very simplistic way of looking at war, but again, how they looked at it is because we have an atomic monopoly, this will drive the Soviets to their knees. However, there were those that, that are going to say, all you're going to do is prove to the Soviets that we're barbarians, and you're just going to upset them even more,
1: and they're not going to quit.
0: They
1: didn't quit with the Nazis, and they're not going to quit with us. Which was the underlying unspoken moral or, or lesson behind a strategic bombing survey as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, because as you saw in the bombing survey, it says morale never dropped. Of course, it's a, it's a totalitarian government, which what the Soviet Union is as well. What choice do you have? I guess I better go to work today. I don't have any choices. And so this is where you get, as you pointed out, some of that cognitive dissonance between, well, this really didn't work, but there's no reason not to try it again. you You do have this kind of false dilemma or this dichotomy going on here. And keep in mind, too, it isn't just all nuclear. They also planned on a conventional campaign as well. To, uh, to work uh, in unison with nuclear applications. What's interesting, though, is, as you mentioned, these early war plans are talking about dropping dozens and then hundreds of atomic weapons over the Soviet Union at a time when I just told you, in 1947, we have parts for six. So the, this is a direct example of how the war plans aren't even reflective of what the U.S. arsenal looks like because the military doesn't even know how many bombs there are.
1: Well, that kind of answers the question I was going to bring up, which was you know, what condition is strategic air command in when it's established? Which yeah, is not uh, very good. And,
0: no, it's not. Because it, it, and like in most wars, uh, everybody wants to go home. And, you know, this is before you had a large standing military in the United States. And, and most of the men who served in the Army and the Navy all wanted to go home and have children and carry on with their lives. And what you have with this uh, demobilization, as one Air Force leader calls it, a riot, really, everybody leaves to include those trained, quality, smart, you know, experienced air crews. And I may say maintainers, the guys who fix airplanes. A lot of those guys leave. And many who stay or become assessed into the Air Force or to the military are not, well, I'll say it, they're the dregs. They're not that bright. They don't have a lot of future. Uh, so they stay in the military. And, and in the book, I talk about some of the the uh, test scores, assessments for maintainers as they come into the Air Force. And keep in mind, as we progress from the Second World War, the airplanes get more complex, bigger jet engines, require more maintenance, cost more, but yet the maintainers and the pilots aren't of the kind of caliber you would want to have in your nuclear force. And so you also have a problem not only with the airplanes themselves getting old, as I pointed out with the silver plate bombers, but the pilots and the maintainers themselves are
1: subpar. Well, it's also a question of leadership too. I mean, people think of Strategic Air Command and, and they, they those who, who do think about it immediately turn to Curtis LeMay as you know the flamboyant aggressive commander who advocated bombing his enemies to the United States enemies to the Stone Age, much later during the Vietnam War. But when the strategic air command is first created, it's led by the former Southwest Pacific Air Commander, General George Kenny. How does Correct. Kenny compare with LeMay?
0: Kenny has a great wartime record, you know, being Douglas MacArthur's, you know, air commander for Fifth Air Force. And he has a, a great reputation coming out of the war. The problem is he starts to become enamored with his celebrity to a large degree. Well, he comes
1: from MacArthur's he, command. So you can see where that would rub off.
0: Yeah, you can see yeah, that rubbing off on him. But there, there's this idea subsequent to the war of developing a world air force and of course, this is when we're still debating whether or not we're going to give up our nuclear secrets and make them available to the world under the idea that if everybody knows about it, nobody will build them and we won't go down that road. Of course, we don't go down that road. However, George Keeney is an ambi- still an ambitious uh, officer. He sees uh, that if they were to build this World Air Force, he would be in charge of it. And so he uh, at first Spends a lot of time in New York City, you know, at when the UN moves there, working on this particular program. By October 1946, he kind of realizes this isn't going to happen, and he's lost interest. And so, when he takes the helm of Strategic Air Command, he is now you know the lead officer for this new application, this new defensive shield for the United States. In that role, he is on the road constantly meeting people crushing the flesh, making speeches, doing those kinds of things, and not tending to the store, as it were. And senior leadership within the Air Force start to notice this, that the big stick that we've created with Strategic Air Command is not operating at the competent level that we would expect it to be. And as a matter of fact, this becomes such a concern that the chief of staff of of the Air Force Two spots sends Charles Lindbergh and Paul Tibbets to look at some of the strategic air command units and make their own evaluations regarding SAC air crews and maintenance. And they both come back with the same observations. They uh, say that the the crews are, are, are overworked, the the maintainers are overworked. You have poor morale. That the, the the troops are not competent. And as a result, they realize that Keeney hasn't been minding the store. So in October of 1948, he is subsequently removed, and LeMay is put in charge to basically clean house, mm-hmm. and he does. And that's when you start to see the growth of SAC, as you and I understand it you know, from the history of the 50s and 60s, largely begins with
1: LeMay. Well, you also credit NSC-68 as a critical step in, Absolutely. In, in developing a reliable nuclear deterrent largely, or particularly in view of Truman's own fiscal conservatism and public skepticism of the need for this large military establishment. How does NSC-68 factor in to ensuring yeah, this takes place? Great question.
0: I, I, I will make the argument that the autumn of 1949 is a watershed event in the American military because you have, you sniff out Joe one the uh, beginning of September. The, the explosion's in August, but they sniff it out in the beginning of September. A month later, you have the establishment of the People's Republic of China. That's coming, you know, for years. We see it, the train coming, but on one October, Mao raises the flag over Tiananmen Square. That same month, you have the revolt of the admirals, the testimony that we talked about a little bit earlier. You also have, now that the Soviet Union has the atomic bomb, they may have this thing called a super bomb or a thermonuclear weapon. We understood the theory, or at least started developing the theory of thermonuclear weapons in 1945 with Edward Teller, but Oppenheimer told him, look, we don't have time to do that. We'll worry about it later. And as I told you before, nuclear research kind of goes on the back burner during this period. Now the question's being asked, if the Soviets have an atomic weapon, are they potentially working on a thermonuclear weapon. So that is being discussed in October, uh, October and November, December 1949, as well as a discussion on increasing the nuclear stockpile that we have already because our war plans don't match our, our inventory. And so you have a number of efforts or a number of, of uh, events that are coming together that are intersecting here in this autumn period of 1945. And it's, my argument that, that this period leads to a reassessment of American national security strategy, which results, of course, in NS, NSC C-68. And a C-68 has a price tag to it. If you want to do this kind of defensive posture, the military budget has to go from basically $14 billion annually to almost $48 billion annually. And of course, we know that after the China, uh, the, China, uh, the North Koreans come across the border in the summer of 1950, Truman will sign NSC-68 in August in 1950, which, of course, puts more money back into the, the military coffers, and you'll see uh, an exponential growth in, in the Air Force. And competency, your B-47s, your B-52s start coming out during this time as well. And of course, that gets superseded by NSC-162, the new look which puts even more money and even more emphasis on
1: strategic bombardment. Well, you know, you mentioned the super, you know, which does change the calculus of atomic war planning taking place at strategic air command. Was this viewed as an advantage or a detriment by American planners at the time, the need to develop the thermonuclear bomb?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, because there's a lot of hand-wringing that, that, that's going on between not only the Atomic Energy Commission, and the general advisory board, but the military planners themselves wondering, well, when are you going to use this thing? You know, is this really a military weapon? Yeah. This is the debate. You know, it, one, is it moral? Okay, that's a whole other issue. But two, what kind of targets are you going to use this thing on? You've got, you know, megatons worth of destructive power. And it basically comes down to the argument that, look, if we don't develop these, they will. And we can't afford to, have, to let them have them, and we don't. So at the end of January 1950, when they finally bring the, uh, the issue to Truman for decision, his response is, what the hell are you waiting for? Yeah. You know, let's, let's start this process. And so this is why you, this idea of bigger bombs, because we're going to need these things, ju- at least as a deterrent. And if we're going to use them, you know, they're going to use them on us. And so you start getting the mutual assured destruction and, you know, and those things that come up that, that, uh, that uh, bloom a little bit later on in the 1950s. Uh, but this idea is what are we going to do with these things? They're kind of confounded at this early stage with thermonuclear. weapons. Of course, we haven't developed them yet. They're still theoretical. But at the time, this what is its real use?
1: They haven't figured that out yet, but they know that they can't afford not to have them. Well, what about within the Atomic Energy Commission? I mean, there was pushback there as well, wasn't there?
0: There was. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, 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 the commissioners of the Atomic Energy Commission were split three to two uh, over should they or should they not. And there are those members of the Atomic Energy Commission who are pushing it, are writing to members of the Congressional Committee on Atomic Energy pushing this issue, even though the, the, the commit, three of the commissioners don't want to do this. And... You have gentlemen like Isidore Rabi, uh, Oppenheimer, and Enrico Fermi, who serve as advisors saying, don't build these things. But again, once uh, members of the Energy Commission start talking to members of Congress, this it gains momentum over time.
1: Well, you bring the book to a close with this new optimism within Strategic Air Command as President Eisenhower's new luck posture comes into shape. How exactly was this? Was this a departure, though, from the 1946 to 1950 policies? Yeah, good,
0: great question. Here's the deal: with the during that 45 to 50 period, there is a the budgets themselves are basically looked upon as an even spread. Uh, if if the budget was 14 billion. Then each service gets, you know, basically $3.5 There's some adjustments, but basically three point, it's even spread across the board. Okay. And, of course, the Air Force doesn't like that, as we discussed before. Now, when uh, Eisenhower comes in, he is very concerned about defense uh, spending and, you know, about the ideas of the you know, nuclear or the, uh, the industrial, military-industrial complex that he frames a little bit later on. But he's very concerned about military spending, and he wants to cut back on military spending because he thinks we're spending too much money. Well, what they actually put together is a is a, a think tank called Operation Solarium. You know what should our defensive posture look like? You know to save money but build it for the long term, because under NSC sixty eight. What we envision is that the Soviets will have a capability by 1953 to strike America with its bombers and atomic weapons. And so that's what you're kind of focusing on with NSC-68. However, with NSC-162, what Eisenhower's looking for is a, what he refers to as a floating D-Day for the long term. We can't spend ourselves into the ground expecting the Soviets to attack. We need to be more efficient with our dollars. And build a defense posture that will work in the long run. And as a result, what they come to come to the conclusion is that means strategic air command and atomic bombing is where we're going to put our dollars. And so the Air Force comes out on top because they see that as a more uh, as a wiser way to spend their defense dollars for this long term. Now, the irony of it is they end up spending just as much money under NSC 162 as they did in NSC 68, but uh, the idea here is now we're putting more and more money towards the Air Force at the expense of
1: the Army and the Navy. Well, we're closing at the end of the interview, John. Uh, what are you reading these days that you might want to share with our audience that you think is worthwhile?
0: This particular area, there's uh, some great works out there uh, from the, the Joint Office. Uh, and, the uh, history of, uh, of the department of defense, the, the uh, it's called, uh, the early years, 1947 to 1950, uh, gives a very good account, not just of this particular topic, but all the issues that are affecting the department of defense during this time and up to the Korean war. Um, and so I've, I've been looking at a lot of those lately because of my next work again, addresses this fall period. I just got done reading, um, a number of works regarding uh, the Korean War, you know, Japan 19, or China 1945, uh, doing some research on uh, the American experience there and how we see Chiang Kai-shek. He's going to lose. We know this by, you know, 46 and 47. But what do you do? You know, he's fighting you know Mao and the Red Army. And, and we can't stomach that, but we also know that Chiang Kai-shek has a number of issues regarding corruption and misappropriation of, uh, of equipment and uh, graft and corruption. But he's our guy. So I've been looking at, at uh, these uh, early Cold War era uh, in support of this uh, this next book that I'm, I'm hoping to get done within a year or so.
1: Well, John, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us at New Books of Military History. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to well, talk absolutely. to you. Absolutely. And for all of our listeners, and on behalf of the New Books Network, this is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off. Thank you all for listening.